I said, you know, Alan, I, I want to do things out of hemp. And he thought, what? And I said, I want to do stuff out of the, the fabric, which represents this flash, this rock and roll edge or whatever anybody wants to call it. I want it, I want there to be some symbolic unity into this thing, like the reality. I don't want to just throw weed on stuff just because it's cool. I want there to be more reference to it. You know, it's a natural fabric. You know, it's beautiful. It's durable, you know, if it's made right. And so that's what we did. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host, Shada Taravi, and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Okay, we are live back on the To Be Blunt podcast, and I'm super excited to have today's guest because this is, y'all know me, I like meeting people out in the real world and connecting with them on a human level and learning about their backgrounds and weaving it in to ultimately bring the story to the podcast. And my guest today has a very cool background. We're going to for sure get into it. That, of course, touches the cannabis and hemp plant. But he comes from the, to me, magical world of fashion design and especially like the influence, which is really cool to me as if you've kind of been paying attention. I am from Texas, obviously. I love Western wear. And so I, I think a lot of your stuff, Manny, is actually very influenced by the Western wear culture and you fuse it all together. And so we actually got a chance to connect in round time. Texas, which for my listeners who aren't familiar, you probably know more about Round Top than I do just because you've actually been showing in Round Top. But from, you know, kind of a local perspective, Round Top is a arts and market fair for selling goods. A lot of it is antique, but a lot of it is also kind of custom designer oriented. And so you happen to be one of these outposts that me and my fiance were wandering through and you just had such a great personality and a hell of a story. And so I was like, you have to come on the podcast. We have to connect. And so I'm really excited to have Manny Cuevas of Wear It Out by Manny on the podcast to talk about your background of fashion design, your influence of using hemp fabric textiles incorporating into your your runway shows, you're wearing, for those of you watching the podcast right now, you've got clearly cannabis leaves embroidered into your clothing. I know before we were recording, you were showing me a lot of your pieces that, again, have cannabis incorporated into it in some you know way, shape, or form. And so welcome to the show. I'm happy to have you here. It's a pleasure. It really is. It's an honor to be here with you, Shada. And it was so nice to connect with you and, and Sage and Roundtop. My experience in Roundtop was just so phenomenal. It was it was. Looking forward to the many, many more times that I will be there. I'll actually be flying out tomorrow morning and we'll be doing the show from uh, the 19th through the 24th there in Route at 550 Market. I am uh, one of the designers that is uh, stationed there full time permanently at the 550 Market with Rockabilly Baroness. We've got the Stone Cellar and we also have the Round Top Dance Hall, which they will be featuring this uh, Friday with um, music and entertainment. Uh, Yeah. My background now in the uh, fashion industry, I got involved in, in the fashion. My, my father is uh, the better known as the rhinestone Rembrandt in the Western industry. If anybody has ever heard of him or I, we always 
pretty much just go as our first name, which is my father's name is Manuel, and I am Manny. I am Manuel Jr., but I kind of Manny has grown on to me ever since I was a youth in uh, junior high school and just stuck ever since. So I'm, I'm sticking to that. And that's my story. I started sewing at the age of six in my dad's studio, watching over the the incredible artisans, which I like to call the 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 artisans of the Americas. These people were or were making everything handmade, from tailoring suits to uh, making handmade shoes and boots. You know, I had the opportunity to learn and to watch my father block hats, western hats, cowboy hats, doing the pencil roll and doing all sorts of different things. I had the the grandest opportunity. I think really, more than anything, what drew my attention to the craftsmanship in our studio growing up was our boot maker. At the at the end of the day, I would uh, come in and I'd sweep the floors and take the trash out and. I come back with about, you know, 65, 70% of the leather scraps and would walk over to the uh, leather station and start grabbing these tools to do tooling and grab the hammer and just start hammering. And our uh, bootmaker, which was uh, his name was Jose Mendes, his nickname was El Paisano, would always customly just come over to me and say, Look, son, this is not the way you use the mallet. This is not the way you use it to one. And just really nurtured me and, and and taught me at a very, very young age how to use these tools properly and to respect them. And so that that was the really, I think, really the biggest start of of my imagination really exploding in, in our studio. Uh, nevertheless, you know, rolling around in abundance of beautiful fabrics of every color of the rainbow and, and rhinestones and, and you name it, you know, meaning from... You know, being around Porter Wagner, Johnny Cash, Little Jimmy Dickens, Merle Haggard, Buck Owens, Marty Robbins, who was a really good, great friend of my father's. You know, just having that experience was just unbelievable. And it just, it led from one thing to another. You know, I would, after taking out the trash and, and cleaning up the floors, you know, a lot of times my father would ask me to draw florals, animals, and I never really paid much attention to what I was doing. I was just being creative, enjoying it, having fun. But as I grew up and started uh, seeing some of the, some of, you know, little hints of, I guess, some of my drawings incorporated into my dad's work, which was fascinating. I grew up in North Hollywood, California. That's where our business was. I graduated in 1990 and I really wanted to take off something completely different. And my dad said two things to me that day. He said, you know, he said, you didn't. I really was. I really wanted to go into the military and become a fighter pilot. And uh, my dad sat me down and he said, "You know, did you not get a, the proper discipline in this household?" So that was kind of the first, you know, kind of wake up call, I guess, between a father and son. And then the next uh, kind of question that came to me was, or, or, or really remark was, "I want you to work with me." And I thought, "Well, what the heck do you want me to do?" And he said, "Well, whatever you want to do," which was the advice he's given me which has been, you know, really awesome, you know, to have the open range to do really whatever your art really desires. I felt really cultural, you know, we we are Mexican, my father is Mexican, my mother's Mexican. So with him just kind of throwing those two remarks to me that day, I felt like I was obligated to step up to the plate and really kind of do something with the family. So my path in my life changed dramatically, you know, from one day to another. And growing up, I would uh, 
I would travel. My dad would take me to all his fittings to the studios. My dad did massive amount of wardrobe for, you know, Little House on the Prairie. He did a lot of wardrobe for Bonanza. He did a lot of wardrobe for High Chaparral. He did all the wardrobe for One Eye Jacks with Marlon Brando. You know, he did the wardrobe for uh, Giant with James Dean, the, you know, the hat, the denim jeans, the boots, the belt, the buckle. You know, and, and that's just a little taste of the country music, you know, industry and the Western industry more than anything, you know. Nevertheless, uh, being known as the man that made Johnny Cash the man in black is phenomenal. You know, dressing Porter Wagner from day one all the way to the end of his uh, last days performing was uh, phenomenal and many, many more. Um, not only that, obviously, being in, in North Hollywood in California had the influence and the opportunity of being around rock and rollers you know so there was a lot of uh different uh, genres of of different music that i was able to to enjoy liberace was one of my father's greatest clients and friends i I like to share that i think one of the best shows and entertainment that i had ever seen in my life was going and seeing liberace you know the guy would go into an acapella and come out in a different outfit jam on his you know on his piano and you know, would leave again and come out with another outfit. It was just always spectacular. It was nothing like you've seen, like like what we're seeing right now in our time. The showmanship. Yes, correct. The showmanship was just fantabulous. That's what made the show so spectacular. You know, the clothes, the, the lights, of course, and, and then, you know, the band, the rest of the band be participating in the in the dress-up part as well was, was fascinating. You know, uh, my dad worked with the Rat Pack Elite, Neil Young, Bob Dylan, uh, Linda Ronstadt, you know, the list goes on and on and on with our clientele. But long story short, you know, my dad lugged me around to a lot of the fittings at the studios at Universal, you know, sizing people up. My dad was uh, one of the only contracted designers that didn't work on the set. My father did all his work in his own studio and would always deliver stuff. So that that's where my opportunities came in to be able to see these things you know, front and center, I would sit there and, and jot his notes down as he was measuring these these people and anything that I heard, you know, certain colors I would write down that they were talking about, you know, imagery, like from if they were talking about floral abstracts, I'd write down those little hints and clues of, well, you know, to help in the design aspect for my father. Um, not only that, you know, my dad would lug me to all these fabric stores and suppliers that you know, provided us with all the tools needed to make these incredible, unique pieces. Well, heck, you know, I thought if I'm going to get involved in this business, I really wanted to learn the business side. I'd never seen my father pull out his wallet anytime we bought these raw materials. So I thought, you know, how, how did you, how do you do that? You know, how do we just walk in there and, and pick and choose from these incredible exotic skins and, you know, these incredible wools and cottons and fabrics, you know, and different textiles of all sorts, you know, how do we just watch how you're not pay for them? So that was, that was my drive to really kind of learn the, the business side on how, you know, how do we pay our employees? You know, how do, how do we, how do you come up with your prices, dad? You know, that was another tricky question, I think, in, in the learning process, but it was, it was so spectacular, really was, you know, Throughout the years, my father would travel to the East Coast here to Nashville, Tennessee, where I live now, where I reside, delivering a lot of the wardrobe to a lot of the country singers. 
and would come back home with uh, fascinating stories of, you know, of being with these people in their homes and, and at the showcases and watching the shows. So in the back of my head, I always had these uh, beautiful, you know, images of, of things that were going on that I had never really experienced here. So in uh, 1987, my father brought me and uh, his, uh, his wife at the time to Nashville to, to come and see the land and, and check out the city. We ended up coming back a second time that next following year and did a, a family trip where we just looked at property and it was the most boring thing to me. You know, we kept looking at so many incredible places. I just kept, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the very, you know, the very first, it could have been the second, the third one that I was like, this is the one, this is the one we need to do. And of course there was, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10 other properties that we still had lined up to look at. So it was a, it was kind of a, an endless trip for me, but it was really fascinating to, to be here and, uh, to see the the season, you know, the change too, because we had come at a different time the first time, and then to come at a different time of the year was really beautiful to see the the leaves changing. So eventually, my father did end up buying property here in the state of Tennessee. He bought a a really beautiful a historical building in on Music Row, a beautiful uh, Victorian home that was labeled on the outside with an etched window that said the accent house and it was a big peacock and right above it said the accent house now i I had heard uh, through you know through people that it used to be an interior decorator so that's what i always thought that's what it originally was but backing up a little bit you know my father relocated my stepmother my little sister here in 1989 i ended up staying in Southern California, as my dad did, my dad was commuting back and forth to Nashville, visiting his family. In 90, I graduated high school. My father threw this idea and this vision to me on, you know, coming on board and working with him. I became kind of like the business administrator and learned the business for about a year. I watched him come to Nashville a couple times a year. And I finally, you know, sat him down and kind of stepped on all of his toes and said, you ever going to raise any of my sisters? We... I come from a family of, uh, I, I claim I have five sisters. You know, we all come from different mothers. My dad says he he didn't want us fighting over our mothers, so he gracefully gave each one of us our own mom. So, you know, Good way to spin it. You know, it's 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 funny. You know, it's it's fun to hear, but he, he's an incredible human being. You know, he's just really so special and so talented. And uh, so the next thing that came to mind was I, I said, you know, I sat him down. I said, you know, I haven't seen you visit the family that much. And, you know, my little sister is just a little baby. And, you know, I think we should be there with her. And I said, you have this incredible building. We should really build it out and move our business there. And he said, well, you know, you're you're kind of in charge of this thing. Why don't you talk to the employees? So one Friday after after payroll was handed out, I asked everybody to stay because I wanted to share something with them. And I shared them my vision. I told them that I wanted to relocate the business from North Hollywood, California to, to Nashville, Tennessee. You know, these people had known me my whole life, watched me grow up in the business. And uh, their response was like, you know, we've been behind your dad this whole time. Why wouldn't we be behind you? And they said, we're doing this. So, you know, I went ahead. I rented a 46-foot rider truck. I'll never forget it. Uh, all five families that were working with us you know, my whole life, jumped on board and helped us load every last thimble and thread into this truck, all of the equipment. And uh, they followed us across country with their families. And it was one of the most epic things I think I'd ever done in my lifetime. You know, it was just, uh, it was beautiful. 
<clears throat> you know, I, I tra- had the opportunity of traveling with my dad in the United States. And good gosh, I don't know how many times we had stopped in the middle of the painted desert and watched the sunrise go down and, and that spiritual kind of life coming alive there in that part of the country and, and hearing the, the, the wind whistling and hearing the chanting of drums and stuff that just, you know, if, you, if you're really spiritual, if you've, if you've got that spiritual feeling in you, I think you could really experience it that way that I did the many times as a kid. So, you know, traveling with this family cross country, I was able to, to finally allow them to experience it with us. You know, they had heard about it so many times. It was just so beautiful. We uh, landed here in Nashville, Tennessee in March of 91 was like March 4th or 6th. It was one or the other, but it was that first week of March. We'd driven cross country. We got here and uh, we pulled up to the shop. And of course, everybody was tired. You know, the kids, everybody was just kind of wore out. I had so much energy in me as I always do. And I said, you know, we got to unload this truck right now. And they looked at me and they thought, you are insane. And they said, we didn't do this for nothing. Let's do it. And we all together as families, we, we unloaded the truck, got everything out moved everybody into my dad's house, you know, so it was, you know, it was, it was incredible to have these people there living with us for a minute. Within the next three days, we had, we, we set shop up and my dad was designing and cutting and sewing into his, you know, third, fourth day being here in Nashville. And it was, it was, it was one of the most, again, one of the most incredible things ever. You know, growing up, I would watch my father create these incredible one-of-a-kind pieces that he never replicates. And that's, that's his deal is anything he makes, he makes it once and that is it. He will not ever duplicate it. I'd always watched him make pieces and after he was done, he'd rip up his design and throw it away in the trash. And, you know, I never understood that. You know, I always, I always thought, God, this is, these are things that we should make record of. We should archive this and have it for the future for whatever reason. Posterity, you know, yeah. You know, yeah. And so one of my, my biggest promises that I made to Manuel was, you know, if I'm I'm on board with this and I'm going to be your right hand person helping you design and really work with the clientele now one on one, anything and everything that we design, I'm going to save. So everything that I drew on my own, that my father drew, that we designed together, that we collaborate on, I would sign date on mm-hmm. our design work and and put the person's name who we designed it for, and I've archived it. So. Since 1991 until 2005, when I literally stopped working with my dad full time, everything has been archived. You know, I, I have a a box that has nothing but florals. You know, roses. The roses is something that is really special to us. You know, my dad has used that. I say that his one of his biggest trademarks and and anything that he's ever designed has been the rose. Uh, I've been drawing the roses by his side ever since I was a kid, which actually happened to be in my arm. Uh, all the roses that are on my arm represent really wow. the roses that my dad and I have drawn since I was a kid. And they're on my no one arm, which represents no one but my dad. And I know the real truth about these roses that I carry. So it's, um, you know, it's really special. It was, uh, it was an incredible experience, you know, and, 1993, my father introduced me to the WISA show in Denver, Colorado, which is which stands for the Western English Sales Association. It is the uh, largest American lifestyle trade show that happens twice in the United States. It happens once in 
January, which is really the biggest show. And then the second show is in uh, September. And people come from all over the world to shop. You know, American made uh, quality goods from, you know, trailers to saddles to tack to boots to hats to furniture. I mean, you name it, they've got it. They had every little bit of, you know, lifestyle necessity in a home that you could ever imagine. You know, growing up in the business as well, I was, I had the grand opportunity of, of meeting other artisans in the world, you know, from silversmiths to, uh, uh, boot makers, you know, Sam Lucchese, you know, good gosh, the people from, uh, from, uh, American Hat Company, you know, so I was always around this whole industry growing up, you know, from a little shit kicker, I'd like to say. You know, we had a horse ranch in Southern California that my dad was partnered with, with a, a great friend of his by the name of Ken Warner, which was actually one of the original Marlboro men in the commercial where, you know, he was riding the horse with the flag and, you know, Shit. had a cigarette hanging out his mouth. Just really phenomenal, great storage. You know, so I grew up on a horse ranch as well. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't just glitz and glamour in Hollywood, but I also had to, you know, shovel the shit out of the stalls and feed the horses and brush the horses, put them on the walker, ride them, walk them, you know, break them. It was, uh, it was phenomenal. It really was just so fascinating. So that year in 1993, my father took me to the Western English Sales Association. We went for just three days just to check it out. I kind of designed three different outfits for the three different days to really kind of show off my talent with, you know, to a lot of the the people that seen me grow up in the business, I figured, you know, this is going to be a, an opportunity for them to see what I'm doing with my dad. You know, I'm, I'm working with him and wanted to kind of showcase what I was doing. So we went and it was, it was, it was so phenomenal. It, it sparked something in my mind that I really had no idea of, to be honest with you. You know, a lot, handful of uh, retailers and manufacturers said, you should come back. That was the September show that we went to. They said, you need to come back in January and see the January show and really experience that. And a handful of them offered me their showroom. They said, you know, why don't you bring some of your pieces and hang them up in our showroom? And, you know, if people come in and ask about them, we'll give them your number and take it from there. Well, heck, I was making these Western shirts at my dad's shop that had roses on them, on, you know, Western yokes and cuffs on the real traditional Western shirt. And I brought about a dozen of them with me to Denver. And heck, I was I sold all 12 shirts into the second day. I mean, it wasn't even midday and I was done. And I remember on that third day, you know, my dad and I were early birds, always have been. And uh, we went and had our breakfast and he said, you know, let's go to the show. Let's walk the floors and say good morning to everybody. And of course, everybody pulling their, their cameras out. Can I get a picture of you and your dad? Can I get a picture with your dad? And I remember we were on the on the fourth floor and as we were walking around, Manuel says to me, he says, what's he says, what's going on, son? And I said, nothing. And he says, you got like a chip on your shoulder. And I said, I don't. He says, something is going on with you. And he says, let's sit down. And there was a little bench. And we sat down. And he says, what, what's really going on? And I said, you know, Pop, I said, we came six months ago to this thing. And, you know, Lucchese, you know, Scully, you know, Justin Boo Company, you know, a handful of manufacturers had pieces showcased in their windows that were so relevant to what I was wearing and to what my dad was wearing. And uh, I was like, you know, these, they knocked us off. Like, these are our pieces. And with that said, you know, Manuel jumped up and he stood in front of me and, and he said, you know, son, 
He says, I, I'm going to be honest. He says, you know, he says, he says, you're 10 steps ahead of all these people. He says, there's a gift, that you, there's a talent that you're still not sure about that you have, but you have it. <clears throat> and he said to me, you know, to this day, I mean, you know, being Hispanic, it's kind of hard to ever hear your father loves you or he's proud of you. So in his own words that day, right at that moment, as he's explaining this to me, he said, you know, the most fondest thing, son, is people knocking you on from life. Mm-hmm. And with that said, it just, it was like fireworks going off in my head. And it was just, it was, it was, it was really glorifying to hear that he was happy to see what I was doing and what I was creating with him. And he made it clear with, you know, other words, not saying it directly, but using other words. And it was so special. And that day, at the end of the day of the show, as we're coming down the escalator, a gentleman stopped me at the bottom and he said, you know, I'd like to speak to you, Manny. And I, I said, sure. And, you know, he introduced himself. And I said, listen, I said, in this family, you know, we've, I've been brought up that our life is an open book. So whatever you have to share with, whatever you want to speak to me about, you can speak to my father. You know, my dad is going to stand right here and listen. And he said, well, my wife bought the last two Western shirts this morning, you know, y- yesterday morning from you. And I said, yeah. I said, oh, yes, I, Ms. Tamara. And he says, yes. He says, well, I want to go into business with you. And I thought, what the heck? And I'll tell you, that was the beginning of everything. We went ahead and I uh, we, we opened up our own showroom on the fourth floor in Denver Market. It was right in the middle of nowhere. And I remember my business partner at the time, he said, you know, why would you pick somewhere so far away from where everything is happening? And I said, because we're unique. We're one of a kind. We're It doesn't matter what I'm going to design and what I'm going to make. It will always be limited. You know, I, that's what I want to do. I want to do things that are, that are limited. You know, if if there's, you know, 10 pieces, they're going to be so special that people are going to fight to get the, the first one. And, you know, the person that gets the last will be glorified with having the last piece. So, you know, that's what, that's what I wanted to do. And that's what we did. With that said, you know, I, didn't want to hurt my dad's business that he had been that he had started and that he'd been working with so many years for so many decades since the 50s and i took a lot of elements of the raw materials that my dad used in his everyday work and incorporated them into my collections uh, immediately what i ended up doing was you know half of our employees when we moved to nashville relocated business Within like four months, half of them turned around and left Nashville and went back to Southern California because it was, it was a major culture shock to them. Yeah. You know, we were like the, we were like the only Mexicans here. There was no tortillas. There was no queso here. You know, it's just no carne asada. You know, everybody, it was like we were the only Mexicans here. So with that happening, I thought, what the heck? I'm going to go back to Southern California. I'm going to rile up, you know, I'm going to posse up the whole team and get them involved. And that's what we did. We opened up own little facility. I knew I could trust these people. They already knew the quality of work that I wanted to create. And I started designing and we started making limited edition pieces. You know, eventually our production grew and uh, we had to expand and and hire more people and teach people, but it was fascinating. It It was so incredible. So it was the first time that I actually licensed the family name with a partner and and called it the Manuel Collection Um, and uh, kept true to it. I was selling to a lot of these incredible boutiques, you know, Western boutiques, the Lettys of the world, you know, the, wow. It was, it was fascinating. Tootsies, all these little boutiques all over Texas jumped all over. You know, I started doing trunk shows where I would 
display my unique pieces at these trunk shows, what I would do is I would bring actually one-of-a-kind unique pieces from Nashville, from our boutique in Nashville, that nobody had and nobody would see and sell them as one-offs. And of course, I got hit by, you know, the cutters, the the barrel racers say, God, can you incorporate some of these this imagery into your collections so it could be accessible to us? And boy, that just opened up a whole other avenue of of continuing the Western apparel with the legacy of what my father had created. And so that's what I did. You know, I, I used I continued to use Swarovski crystals. It was all it was always about quality, 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 not quantity. And uh I took it to the next level where I started numbering our limited goods mm. and the labeling. So if I if I only made a hundred pieces, the labels inside the apparel or the sh- the boots were one of a hundred, two of a hundred, three of a hundred. So it was it was so much fun, you know. It was like my sales strategy has always been and still is to this day the first come first serve. So if I have something that's limited, the first people that are there that are view it and they think if, if it's fabulous. I I recommend that I recommend to them. Hey, you need to purchase right now. Like get it while you can, so you have the first run of pieces, so you can be that exclusive location that had the first unique pieces of the Manuel collection. So that went on for several years. Eventually, you know, my business partner kind of went away, went kind of stray on me, and I didn't like what he was doing. And I thought, man, I'm not going to allow anybody to to damage what my father has worked so hard for in his lifetime and still continues to do it. So I pulled the licensing. I handed my contract with them and I kind of tucked my idea under, you know, in, in my armpit and under the carpet for myself that hope with hopes that I'll do it again later on in time. And I finally did again. In 2005, I went ahead and I licensed the family name. I was, uh, I did this, I collaborated with my father and, and a handful of our interns. My father had always talked about wanting to teach people our our workmanship. And so, you know, I had the opportunity growing up that I actually viewed the full Lucchese boot collection before they went, you know, a couple of them went missing. So that was one of my biggest inspirations as a young boy, to be able to touch these boots and to see them. I was fascinated with it. So in, in my head, I had always talked and, and shared with my dad the dreams to do a collection like that in clothing. And so so just around that time in Nashville, our business was growing immensely. Uh, I sat down with Manuel and I said, you know, dad, I think I'm going to start bringing interns. No, 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 I don't want to do that. And I said, you've talked about this your whole life. This is something that you, this is a passion of yours. You you want to share your talent and, and your knowledge to everybody. And this could be cool. So, you know, we were involved with, with the College of Omore, which was the designer school here, a very prestigious collegiate design school that was based in Franklin. And uh, I reached out to them. We, we, My dad became part of the board members and, and you know, to be able to talk to the students. I jumped on board immediately right behind him and just kind of took over the position and, and really was doing all the presentations and sharing the knowledge on how I grew up around the business. Monkey see, monkey do. I didn't go to school for this. This was all I was self-taught, you know, at the age of six, I started running the sewing machine when the rest is history, you know, and I'm, I ran every machine in our, our studio by the age of seven, you know, welting machines for, for, for souls. I was running embroidery machines, you know, I was doing leather tooling. I was lacing. It was just fascinating. So it, 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 I wanted to bring that part in and wanted 
I wanted to to start that dream, make that dream come alive for my dad. So I started bringing in interns. My dad and I had started the State Jacket Project, um, which was in essence that the reminiscence of that Luke Casey boot State Boot Collection. And uh, you know, my dad and I had uh, talked about it for a couple of years. We had decided that we would go ahead and cut these jackets, make bolero style jackets, short jackets, which represented our culture of being Mexican, which brought that bolero style into it, which is really Spaniard, but still, you know, part of our culture. We decided that we would do red, white, and blue, which represented the color of the flag. You know, still to this day, everything that my dad cuts to hang up in his store, he cuts at my size and that's always been kind of special to me because, you know, everything fits me. So these jackets were all cut in my size. We did the initial, you know, we cut the first three jackets, the first red, white, and blue jacket. My dad and I sat around and looked at this fabric for a while, it being cut. We prepped them. My dad and I collaborated on the first one and two. And, you know, I was doing so much work in Texas, so I took that Texas jacket on, you know, kind of, kind of really for myself. I mean, my dad had huge inspiration in it but i you know i was doing so much in texas that that really was kind of like my baby i thought man i'm gonna do this you know i never even flinched and thought about doing the hollywood jacket you know knowing that that's where i was born but i did give influence to that and then the the second jacket was obviously our tennessee jacket i was like dang we're here you know this is where we're at this is our own so those were the first kind of two pieces that we started working on and uh and then i started pulling interns in and I explained to my dad, you know, he was like, whoa, whoa wait a minute. You know, I'm not, I don't think I'm ready. And I said, you're ready for this. And I said, listen, what we can do is we could, these, these young individuals, these talented people that, we're, that I'm bringing into our space, let's allow them to do their research. Let them pick the state that they want to do. Let hmm. them pick the color of the jacket. There's only three colors they could choose from. And let them do the research and, and let them do the layout on where they want to place this imagery and then we approve it and let's watch them put these pieces together. Let's give these kids this opportunity, you know, of doing this. And, you know, one thing led to another and it became a big spill. It was, it was beautiful. It really, it was incredible. It opened up a different avenue for my dad and I to collaborate with other people, allow people into our space. And, uh, you know, we ended up finishing these jackets. The uh, Frisk Museum, which is the visual arts museum that's here in Nashville, Tennessee, the Frisk family, when they built the museum, they they approached my father and they said, you know, we'd love to have this collection viewed here first before anybody has it. And how could we say no? And they did just an an incredible presentation, just the most Mm -hmm. beautiful presentation that I had ever seen of my father's work besides the the artists that had worn his pieces on stage or on film you know this was something completely different and uh he named it the the star spangled couture collection in doing these jackets we you know i ended up researching i told my dad i said you know what we need to do we need to do two sets of these jackets and he says you're you're crazy he says you know this is this is a lot of work and i said well what I'd like to see happen is I'd like to see these jackets travel the United States, kind of, you know, your vision and your dream and and, and what we've put together. Because really what we came up was one of his hopes was that these jackets would travel each state museum. And eventually I used that idea and I, and I pushed it to him. I said, listen, you want these jackets to travel through the United States and to be viewed, but you also want a gift each state museum their state jacket what are we left with 
you know, what, what, what is our led? What are we left with for, you know, if I have kids or my sisters or, you know, we don't know. I mean, just the legacy of your work. And he said, you're right. He says, so let's do this. So we ended up doing two sets. I did, you know, identical sets of these pieces. Uh, I ended up closing the business for months, which my dad was just horrified about. He's like, oh my God. But we did it. We, we, we knocked it out and the collection went into the Frisk Museum first off. Meanwhile, while it, while it was being showcased at the Frisk Museum, I was doing my research and I thought I brought a different aspect of the, of the Star Spangled Couture jackets to my dad. And I said, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to research the, the three most wealthiest Amer- people that live in America. I'm also going to research, you know, three of the most, you know, biggest collectors here in America. And I think we should offer this to those people first before anybody. And before you even decide to donate each jacket to its state museum, let's let's bring these people together. Let's pitch them our idea, and I'm pretty sure one or the other is going to want to maybe buy the one collection that's supposed to be gifted, and let them handle it, and we'll keep ours for our family future reference. Well, with that happening, uh, you know the Calgary Hall of Fame was just rebuilding their location in Fort Worth, Texas. They reached out to me and they said, Manny, you know we would love to have. The jackets after they leave the frisk, we'd like to, we'd love to have them here in Fort Worth. And heck, I said, how could how could we not say no? You didn't, you know, absolutely, we're in. And uh, with that happening, that first week of being there in in Fort Worth, Texas, I was introduced to an individual out of the Dallas area. And uh, prior to to really setting up, but I, I visited with this man. I sent him, you know, a handful of pieces that I had been working on since my last collection that I had been kind of just hiding. I mean, no lie, they were really kind of shoddy and half-ass made, but they were made, you know, they were my pieces. And this was part of kind of my dream of me hoping to do a collection later on in life. Well, this man asked me to send some of my pieces to him. I had already had planned that I was going to meet with him. So I had my dad, Manuel, uh, Scott Wayne Emmerich, who is owner of Trace Outlaw Boot Company out of El Paso, Texas was there at the showing and I asked Scott and my dad to go with me to this introduction and to this meeting to this man's house. And they're like, well, what is this about? I said, I'm I'm going to sit down and listen to what he has to say. I sent him a handful of my pieces and, you know, we'll take it from there. So we showed up to his home and in his dining room, he had everything set up around this whole room and he had mixed to match my suitings and the pieces that I had. And, you know, I was I was really shocked in the way I'd seen it shocked because I didn't, I hadn't envisioned it that way. You know, I had already, the, the way I sent it and the way I, I had it put together was the way I, I had it made, but it really opened up another chapter again in, in imagery and styling more than anything. And this man was like, God, this is phenomenal work. He says, this is really unbelievable work. He said, you know, I've, I've been in this industry for, for many years and I want to come to Nashville. I want to come to Nashville and see your dad and you collaborate for a week. And I, w- I want to see, I want to see this molecule of family connection, you know, going on. And this man had worked with many brands, you know, he, he started Calvin Klein with Calvin Klein back in the day, selling ties out of the, oh my God, out of the trunk. And so he was a very, very knowledgeable in the fashion, in, in the high fashion industry. Um, he came to Nashville. He watched my father and I work from that Monday through Friday. And on that Friday, he sat down with my dad and I said, you know, Manuel, I want to, 
I want to teach your son what I've been doing for the last 40 years of my life. And he says, I'm going to teach him quickly. And he says, and not only, but with your, with your blessing, I want to do this. And my dad said, we'll go for it. And uh, with that said, I flew out on Monday morning. That following Monday, I flew into Dallas from Nashville. Uh, and uh, Alan Tucker was his name. Alan jumped on the plane. And from, from Dallas, we flew to New York. And from New York, Alan took me to Florence, Italy for the first time in my life. It was, he took me to, to Europe for the very, very, very first time in my life. He took me to Florence. When we got to Florence, he explained to me, he says, you know, what I'm about to teach you is, he says, a lot of these people that you're seeing running around here are not tourists. They're fashion houses. That's their team, their fashion team. You've got, you've got your, you, you've got your production manager. You got your sourcing manager. You got your, designer you got your assistant designer your graphic designer you got your salesperson these these people are running around and what they're doing is they're buying pieces they're taking them back to their hotel they're analyzing these pieces they're photographing these pieces you know they're cutting they're cutting they're, they're cutting little bits of fabric out of the inside of these pieces so they have you know reference of what they've looked at to their pictures and their notes and then they're basically, if they can return these pieces, they're returning these pieces, man. And then they're going back to their fashion houses, wherever they're from, whether they're in Europe, in in, in the United States, or or Asia, wherever they're from, they're going back to their to their team, and they basically recreate their thing with their half enough. So they knock each other off. And I thought, whoa! <laughs> I thought, well, this is kind of interesting. And you know, I, I'm I was I'm always writing in this little book. Alan said, you know, I want you to buy. Anything and everything you want for reference, you need to do this. Well, heck, we were in Florence, Italy for, you know, two and a half weeks. From Florence, Italy, he took me to Milan for another two and a half weeks. From Florence, Italy, he took, I mean, from from Milan, he took me to, to Paris for like another week and a half. And from Paris, he took me to London for the last two and a half weeks. And when we were in London, I walked into a Louis Vuitton store and I had spent probably give or take about a good 45 minutes in the store. And within that moment, I saw them sell 12 handbags. And the hand, the specific handbag that I, that I had seen going out the door was like this hobo feed. It was a feedback is what it was. I mean, it's basically a, a, a feedback is what it was, but it was made out of exotic leather. You know, the big, you know, the big bag that was being that, that, the women were walking out with. I mean, some of these bags, the multi-colored Python bag was like, you know, $18,000. And here I am. I watched a dozen of these bags walk out in 45 minutes. I thought, how the heck? So, you know, nevertheless, I ended up buying a medium-sized natural Python bag that I spent $6,000 for and walked outside. And Alan, you know, looked at me and he said, what the heck is this all about? He says, I'm taking you to the 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 fashion meccas of the world. He says, it doesn't get better than the high fashion where I've taken you. He says, you haven't bought anything anywhere you've been, but you just purchased a bag. He said, what is this about? I said, you know, Alan, I, I don't know where this is going. I really don't know what, what we're doing, what we're, where we're going with all this. I said, but if I was to do my collections again, I said, I would produce everything. And I said, I would do a spectacular show. And at the end of the show, people would be so blown away that, they would want to buy in. And I said, and he just kind of laughed. And he said, that's that's pretty cocky and, and amazing. I love that about you. And, you know, we got on the plane 
we, we flew back to Texas, to Dallas. He drove me to this little place called Frisco, Texas that was just being put together. There was one building in the middle of this little town. Dr. Pepper Field was being built. And we went into this building and went, we went into the seventh floor and he, he handed me a key. And he said, you're going to open that door and I'm going to open this door over here at three. And I said, you got it. He says, you know, three. And we open the door and we walk in and there's 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 two chairs literally in the middle of this. Like he took a, a quarter part of this whole level of this building and opened it all up. And there was these two chairs. And I, I approached him and he said, sit down. He said, let's talk. And I said, yeah, we do need to talk. And I said, what is this about? And he says, this is where you're going to start your business. He's, this is where you're going to start. He says, your dream team is going to be put right. He's, I'm going to put together a team for you. And I was like, really? And he says, yeah. And he said, listen, he says, uh, I said, well, are you going to fund this whole thing? I said, with that black American express card or what? Or he says, no, he says, I'll take care of some of it. He says, but I've got some capital venturist friends here in Dallas that already have some meetings put together for you. And I thought, what do you mean? He says, listen, he says, the way you've pitched your idea and your vision to me, he says, I want you to just be yourself. I want you to, in these meetings, I want you to be yourself. I want you to cuss. I want you to, I want you to stand out. He says, just your, your mannerisms, your movement. He says, I just want you to do that. I want you to be just yourself. And he says, you know, we've got 12 meetings set up for you. And I, was, I thought, what the heck? He says, yeah. He says, you're going to get on a plane here a little bit. You're going to go back home. He says, you're going to come back in two days. We weren't going to start the meetings in two days. Well, that's what I did. I ended up coming back to Dallas. I went, I went home, came back to Dallas, you know, and I sat down and I pitched myself to these people. I introduced myself to these people and told them what my vision was. And, uh, you know, each person that I pitched, there was only, there was only two individuals. But out of all these people, after listening to my pitch, they wrote a check and it went into an escrow account. The two people that hesitated to write a check at the moment contacted me the next following day and they said, listen, we want to have a breakfast with you. We want to sit down with just you. We want to be with you. And I thought, absolutely. And I went and I sat down with these people and had a great breakfast with one family and they were in. They were like, you know, we, we needed to think about this, you know, and but we'd love everything about this. We're in. They wrote a check and the same thing happened with the second individual. You know, it was like a luncheon. I spent my time with, with him and his family and the same thing happened. And boy, they ended up having, you know, making more interviews for me. And I, I told Alan, I said, I'm not doing anymore. I had raised $8.9 million and just, I mean, you talk about in just a matter of like two weeks, it was just unbelievable. I, I, you know, not going, not having, a so-called diploma for an education and being able to pitch something to people that were open to the belief in what I'm capable and seeing what I was, what I could do was just amazing. And that's where I licensed the family name for the second time. Um, we hired Kelly Catrone as my publicist. You know, Alan Tucker thought I was absolutely insane for manufacturing. I said, I want to manufacture everything right now. Like I want to have this before my runway show. Kelly Catrone got me into Bryant Park, New York Fashion Week in the biggest tent for the first debut of my work. And literally, that's what we did. I had everything manufactured. I went back to Florence. 
south of Florence, Italy. I was manufacturing a Dolce Cabana factory and a Valentino factory. Very, very, very high end and very exclusive. And that's what we did. We debuted in Bryant Park. It was a smash. It was unbelievable. You know, my my dad wasn't never had intention to walk the runway with me at the end of my show, but I grabbed him and I was like, "You got to do this with me." He's like, "This I'm nice. This is my work. This is yours, son." I said, "This I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you." Mm-hmm. So you know, I pulled him out and made him walk with me, and in every other show that I did, I made sure he walked by my side. It was a little confusing to my retailers. You know, the people in Texas that had known me from prior since the '90s were like, "Why are you not?" Why is this not weared out by Manny? Mm-hmm. Why is this not Manny's collection? And I just, I wanted to be true to my family heritage and my lineage and my family. I wanted to be, I wanted to honor, you know, what my dad had worked so hard for and continues doing. And I am Manuel Jr. So I thought, why not? And so anyway, that went on for several years. It was great. I got into you know, 168 domestic retailers here in the United States. I uh, got into well over about a dozen, about 14 high-end boutiques like the Colette of the world in Europe. Um, and was just knocking it out of the park. You know, I, I was I was invited to come back and do New York Fashion Week again in the in the biggest tent. And you know, really to kind of flash in my second show, I had a showroom, my my design studio in. On Broadway, I literally walked my collection from my showroom on the streets all the way into Bryant Park with my cowboy boots on. And, you know, I just, I really brought it to the forefront. You know, I did, my dad thought I was nuts. I did a bunch of stuff that had marijuana leaves on it. I did a bunch of stuff that had crosses and skulls. And he thought this, and he's, he was, he, he was like, this is not going to work. And I said, dad, this is all about my all American Mexican heritage. I mean, the skulls are not. You know, the, the people in LA and the rock and rollers that we cater to think this, that my skulls represents rock and roll. That this, that's part of my, that's our culture. That's, that's our heritage. This is the day of the dead. That's where, that's where the skulls come in. You know, the crosses is, the crosses just come in, not far, don't fall far behind the skulls. You know, it's just part of the religion that I was brought up in and it's, it's in my heart and I love it. And, and God bless it. The weed. You know, the Mary Jade, dad, you know, been around it enough with all the entertainers that we cater to, you know, Willie Nelson, good gosh, you can't, you can't walk up to him and not say hello, you know, before you have to get through the smoke, you know, it's always been around, you know, and, and heck, you know, why, why hide, you know, it's, it's natural. My, my father had done it for so many years, you know, I didn't do it until you know, I didn't try it until I got out of high school. And so what? I'm an advocate for it. I love it. You know, one of the things in my collections, going into the second run in the manufacturing of my collections, I brought it to the forefront to Alan. I said, you know, Alan, I, I want to do things out of hemp. And he thought, what? And I said, I want to do stuff out of the, the fabric, which represents this flash, this rock and roll edge or whatever anybody wants to call it. I want it, I want there to be some symbolic unity into this thing, like the reality. I don't want to just throw weed on stuff just because it's cool. I want there to be more reference to it. You know, it's a natural fabric. You know, it's beautiful. It's durable, you know, if it's made right. And so that's what we did. We started sourcing out, you know, farmers here in America because I wanted to keep it American made as best as I could there at the time. You know, there wasn't too many 
textilleries that were weaving it here. It really kind of was going overseas. You know, the hemp fabric has been around. It just hadn't been exploited that big. And, you know, to say that I'm one of the Renaissance people that brought it to the forefront would be foolish. But did I use it? And was I loud and proud with it? Was Mary Jane? Absolutely. I love it. You know, it, and that's something that I that I'm going to research and and really get into. So meeting you at Roundtop was just an addition to this next phase of my life of, of really coming out and bringing Wear It Out by Manny to the forefront now. You know, I've, I've had, I put my life was put on hold because I had massive malpractice that happened to me where they left the instruments in my body. And, you know, I had to close my business here in Nashville and I just became really quiet. I didn't do my shows for a long time. And, and this new avenue of Round Top has just opened me up and has allowed me to really kind of come out with, with my vision uh, that I've had in my back pocket and really start, you know, pushing and going forward and, and, and bring these, these textiles to the forefront again. So this is really special to me. I've got some pieces that I'd love to share. Quick break to say thank you to Restart CBD for sponsoring this podcast. Restart CBD is a brand my sisters and I founded in our hometown in Austin, Texas. We operate a retail location as well as an e-commerce store, and you can browse our wide range of CBD products at restartcbd.com. Again, thank you to Restart for allowing me the time and resources to put on To Be Blunt. I hope you'll check them out for your CBD needs. Let's go back to the episode. Yes, please. I want to see the pieces. And I also want to follow up to just knowing, you know, that background, the remarkable history. I mean, obviously, with your father's influence and understanding, yes, you didn't go to school for it, but you had arguably the best teacher to really introduce you into the world and the skill and the passion, the dedication. And and I remember we were meeting at Round Top because one of the things you don't have on display, at least I don't think you have on display, but you have on display or you had on display at Round Top when we met was a very beautiful fender that had these marijuana leaves etched into it. And so Sage picked it up. He was like, or oh, wait, he didn't pick up at first. He asked the salesperson, who made this guitar and what is the background? And that's when we were like, oh, there's a person named Manny and she or he went and grabbed you and you came up from that's how we started this beautiful dialogue and, and relationship. But it was just so stunning to me because I'm submerged in this world. And so it's obviously still on the fringe. I think there's stigma around cannabis and there's taboo around cannabis. But again, to kind of go backwards into your history with it, I mean, you talking about New York Fashion Week, just like remind us the timing of when you were introducing cannabis, the textiles, the patterns into your work was in the early mid 2000s. And so now to see the progression of where cannabis has gone mainstream, I mean, you coming from California, you doing a lot of work in Texas. I know we're really slow in Texas for cannabis policy. My listeners know that Nashville, I think Tennessee has a very similar timeline of cannabis policy as Texas does, but it's not as taboo anymore. And yet you were so just on the on the edge of wanting to leverage it from a fabric perspective, wanting to incorporate it from a design perspective. And so I want to, yes, see all these pieces and dive a little bit more into like, what was that timeline? Like you said, sourcing it obviously in America was your intention. How has that changed maybe from what you've explored presently? Because from what I understand, 
you need certain one growing hemp for fabric is a different process than growing hemp for cannabinoids, which is what I sell. And then you also need the infrastructure. You need decorticators. You need these infrastructure to actually weave it into the fabric to ultimately turn it into textiles that you would, you know, being able to use in your clothing and your designs. And so I'm just curious to kind of bring it a little bit full circle to one going backwards into that time period and kind of what was motivating you? What was the sentiment? I'd love to know, like, where did those pieces end up? Like, are there, you know, you mentioned Willie Nelson, obviously he's iconic for cannabis advocacy and consumption and now having his own cannabis line. But again, to me, it was like, son of a bitch, there's a beautiful guitar and it's got marijuana leaves all over it. And like, where did this come from? And I'm in Round Top, Texas. And like, then, you know, you have one of the pieces behind you, I remember was at the showroom and it's just beautiful high end stuff. I mean, what you're wearing, everything you do with it, it's not like, again, you just slap a cannabis leaf on it and call it a day. It's very well executed. And I think for anybody to have a voice of using this design, this fabric, like you, you really execute it to the highest level, if I can make that pun. So, well, I'll tell you. So it was the year was, you know, the initial talks when I had brought this up to, to Alan was in that initial trip, the, the introduction to Europe, you know, he picked every corner of my brain as much as he could so he could learn about me. And he was like, where does this come from? Like, where in the hell are you coming up with this? The head of thing I'll tell you was something that happened in high school. When I was in high school in, in 1988, you know, a lot of my friends used a lot of a lot of my friends smoked and i was one of those i wasn't i wasn't naive to it because you know where i come from where i where i grew up is so different the times were different you know kids were doing drugs you know just like they are today and that's a shame right it's just part of life so did i know some kids that were shooting up did i know some kids that were snorting coke did i did i did i know kids that were smoking pot i mean Heck, it was around the house. You know what I'm saying? So it wasn't, I wasn't blind to it. I just, I wasn't a user. You know, I never tried it until I got out of high school. I mean, you know, and then that's the reality. But in 1988, when we came to Nashville and we looked at the property and everything, when we got back to LA, I did a, I did a buying trip with my dad where we went and we bought a bunch of fabrics and I came across this, like it was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a canvas. And I asked the salesperson, I said, what the hell? Is-? I said, this is a hemp. He says, no, this is a hemp. He says, this is a hemp. This is a hemp fabric. This is made out of, you know, and went into the spill of the marijuana. I thought, what? So I was like, shit. I told my dad, I said, hey, pop, I want to buy some of this. And he says, get whatever you want. You know, and that, that's kind of the way it was growing up. You know, my dad, my dad always allowed me to just think openly. You know, there was no filter ever. Still, there's no filter. You know, if I grabbed fabrics that brought, made my eyes explode with imagination, my dad never hesitated and would just tell the salesperson, give me five yards of that. Give me 10 yards. You know, he didn't even have to ask. He was just doing it because he could see the the excitement in me. So I asked my dad, can I get some, get to whatever you want. So I ended up buying this hemp fabric and it was black. Well, I ended up going back to the shop. And, you know, I used to make little knickknacks in my dad's shop. You know, my friends were always like, let's go ride our motorcycles and our bicycles. I'm like, I'm going to stick around and make a freaking wallet. My dad just sold one of my wallets and handed me 600 bucks. Like, I'll hook up with you guys in a day or two. You know? Yeah, business to do. 
Yeah, you know, it was just weird. It was different. You know, I, I found it. I was never asked to do this. I just, it was just part of being around these, the machines and these people, you know, not being afraid to try and do it, you know, whether, whether or not it was half ass. And I'll tell you what I did was I took a baseball cap apart and I went ahead and I made a prototype of this baseball cap by myself and I put it back together with my own fabric. And since all my, since I had so many freaking friends that were smoking weed and I was in high school and I was like this prude kid to drugs, you know, I was like, fuck, I'm going to do something kind of cool for my friends. Mm. So I ended up making this hemp hat and I embroidered the, the, the leaf right on the front end and on the back side of it, on the crest of the back of the arch where you do the adjuster, I ended up writing the original, original weed wear. And, and that was the first piece of hemp fabric I had ever touched in my life. I, I should have had that hat in my hand. It's in my, it's in my trailer outside. That's cool though that you I have still, it still. I That's still, remarkable. I still have. And let me tell you, this hat has flown off my head in the back of a truck on a highway. It's flown off of my head in a speedboat. It's, and I'm like, get it, get it. Like, we got to get that hat. Like, stop, bro. Oh, yeah. Turn, the turn around. Camera. Oh, turn around. And it's the, I have it still. And it's been washed and, and, and it feels so beautiful. And it's, I want to recreate it and I just haven't yet, but there it is. It's still sitting there. You know what I'm saying? So, so that was my first encounter in, in, in touching cool. and becoming knowledgeable of, of the textile. So I brought that to the forefront to Alan and he was blown away. He's like, I want to see this hat. So of course I showed him the hat. And then, you know, through the connections and, and the textilleries and the people that he knows, he got me in front of people, you know, just knowing people. He took me to Europe and we did the, we did the fabric show. And while we were at the fabric show, I sourced it out. You know, I went and, and there, and there was, it was very minimal. I mean, it was so scarce. It just, it wasn't a lot. And it was the fabric that I was finding was very dense and more canvas, very, very heavy. You know, the way I described it, I, I was telling, you know, like my team, Alan, I'm like, fuck, we might as well make a car cover, you know, out of this shit, you know, it's just, you know, industrial. Yeah, it's industrial. It's like, you know, this is like parts, you know, but, you know, now that I know where we can get it, hopefully they can weave it a little differently, you know, add maybe cotton. So I ended up doing some stuff that had some bamboo in, intertwined with the hemp and cotton, which was beautiful so now i had three sources of natural fibers coming together which was phenomenal you know it was just really beautiful and then we ended up doing you know we ended up doing some denim you know i ended up getting it and and, and figuring out you know getting them to do it you know i said man you so there's hemp in the denim so there is hemp yes so there's wow in this cotton in this actual cotton there is hemp in this and it was very limited so these pieces that i did i only did Guys, I only did twenty five of these, you know, because the they they just weren't able to manufacture and make so much of it, you know. Supply and demand of it, I'm sure it was supply. It was people so, didn't know about it, so people aren't asking for it, so they're not producing it. It's expensive to do. Correct, correct, and that's where I was. Let me tell you, I had undisposable income at the moment. My imagination was exploding. Anything and everything that I tell Alan, he's like, we do it. We're doing it. We're doing it. We're doing it. We're doing it. You know, and, they, and it was, God, you, you talk about fascination. I mean, 
to have, you know, just everything at the reach of your hand at most of the time was really phenomenal. Like if it's not there, make it like figure it out. And me going to the factories, that's another thing is that I get inspired by looking at these machines, watching the chemicals being put together because, you know, denim in reality, you know, before it actually is made into the color, it, it is, it's not this, you know, it goes through a whole process and it comes out completely different. You're like, that's denim. And then it's actually treated, it's dyed, you know, in this case, it's rendered, you know, it's, it's made where it's, you know, worn a little bit. And so I did these pieces, you know, in the honor of Mary Jane, you know, that have, you know, marijuana leaves. I did, you know, some leather in, you know, inlays to this stuff, washable leather, you know, at the time, again, you know, there wasn't a lot of this stuff being made. So I, I like to think, you know, I was, I was, I created a lot of this stuff that people were like, what, you know, when they, when buyers would come and look at this, they're like, we've never seen anything like this. You know, on top of that, by doing that, I also incorporated the bamboo buttons, mm-hmm. you know, so people could say, Hey, part of this story isn't only in the fiber. I'm also doing it in the hardware. My hardware has got, you know, bamboo, bamboo, bam, boom, you know, basically what I'm giving them. I'm like, here, here it is. It can be done. Like, you know, if you put your mind to it, you could definitely do it. So that's, that's how it happened. And I, and I did that, you know, for that, that going into that second season of 2006, it was so hard to get. It was so expensive to have made that I had to put it on the back burner and, and say, you know, let's just wait until they're accepted once, once they're really accessible and, and we can go in and purchase, you know, for a better price point and, and really for a price point of the goods that we're going to make too. I mean, good gosh, these, these, these jeans. I mean, so yeah, I was going to ask, what is that like the, run for and cost to make versus obviously like selling too? Okay. So, so this one that has the bamboo and the, the hemp in it, right? Is one thing that's, that's one complete different price, but this is hemp and denim, all right? Cotton blends, right? So I did sterling silver shank buttons. So that brings the price point in this line. So, you know, good gosh, in 2006, selling this pant for, you know, 900 bucks. And let me tell you that, that was steep. You know, yeah, who's buying a pant like that? Like what was the clientele and, and how was it received at fashion week? Was this the line that you walked from your oh, studio yeah. into? Oh yeah. The oh show? yeah. It was so limited that, you know, that was the catch is that when the buyers come in to have the sit down and the, and the upfront representation of the runway show, I always did that with my salesperson. I'm the one that presented personally. So they can get me up front personal and get the whole, the whole freaking cake and shabbat. I would present it to them and I would say, Hey, this is very limited. I mean, there's only 25 of these pieces, you know, and it's already made. And that's, that was the other shocker. They're like, excuse me. They're like, well, delivery won't be till three months. And I'm like, no, I've got it already made. And they're like, wow. I'm like, it's done. Like I'll have it delivered to you tomorrow. Like I'm, I'm, I'm ready to ship. So that was the big game changer. Um, you know, the bamboo and the, and the hab mix, you know, this price point and the leather, you know, leather on the back, leather on the front, leather in the cutouts, you know, in the pockets, you know what I mean? You're looking at a, a $1,200 pair of pants. So the consumer now was your, your eye in boutiques, you know, you had your Stanley, Stanley Sorvac that came in and bought two, three, you had, you know, Fred Siegel out of California, Manny, I'm fucking buying this. Like, I'm an, I want a size run, you know? So it's the Fred Siegels. It was, you know, 
Neiman Marcus kind of viewed it, but again, there was that little stigma of, oh God, I don't know if we can have weed in our store, you know? Shit, you're smoking it all day long when you're going into your damn sales and buying trips with the L. Like, well, compared to now there? where you very much see those influences, you know, people do really high end cannabis centric handbags now and detailing and jackets and pants. And I mean, I've seen it in these high end stores with these high tag prices. And it's mm-hmm. interesting, yeah, to see, like, to your point, these buyers, obviously, people were smoking pot. They've been smoking pot for decades, but to bring it into their store to, you know, kind of promote it was very taboo for them compared to now, like to your point of like putting it on the, you know, back burner in terms of being able to source some of this material. Was it still stigmatized? Yes. Now, I mean, like I'm excited to see what you do next, given how popular it's become and just the background of really where you started trying to incorporate this. So what was the, I guess, media take on that? I mean, that's crazy that you say Kelly Catron. I have to fangirl for a side moment. I mean, everybody you're mentioning is funny. Last night I was wearing my fancy Lucchese boots and it's just, you know, these things that you invest in or you acquire thinking that, you know, it can kind of help connect you to culture, you know, type of style, fashion, things like that. But I used to be a PR girl, one like aspirational. I, I majored in communications in college. And I remember reading Kelly Catrone's book. It was If You Have to Cry, Go Outside. And I was like, I love this woman. She only wears black. It was just super inspirational. She was just so raw and just like, I don't want to say rude, but like real, just, you know, calling it how she saw it. And so I just wanted to mention that from my background, my history has been a part of my journey as well of just, you know, trying to show up as my authentic self and cut out the bullshit. So that's so cool that Kelly was your publicist, especially during this time of, you know, supporting you with these, I don't want to say rogue, but, you know, very raw to use a kind of cannabis adjacent term type of design, fabric conception, and just like pushing it out there. Being like, fuck yeah, yeah. like we're going to talk about it. We're going to wear these things. So what was on the PR side? Was everybody talking about it? You know, like what was it like? Or were they kind of like, oh, that's a little cool, but crazy. Well, okay. So Kelly Catron goes back moons. Okay. Kelly Catron had known that when we first initially had our first meet where she flew to Nashville and now we were really introduced together. And Alan was like, we're really going to consider this. This is the person that you need. At the table, Kelly said, I met you when you were just a little boy in, in North Hollywood at your dad's shop. She says, I was actually a nurse at the time. Wow. She says, I was a continence nurse. And she says, I had always been inspired about starting a firm. And she says, you know, I started People's Revolution in LA and, and, and it's in New York base. So it's two bases. And she says, so I'd known your dad. So there's my dad right there with me at the meeting, you know, and they're kind of chuckling and da-da-da-da-da. And I remember her asking Manuel, he's like, is he really ready for this? Like, does he know what he's up to? And my dad was like, he's fucking more than ready. Like, watch out. Like, don't push him to do something because both of you are going to get in trouble. (laughs) And immediately we hit it off. She was like, you are fucking so raw. You're so awesome. I love that you don't filter anything. And she says, and, 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 you know, when she, when she took me under the wing, she had to train me. 
which was a trip. I mean, there were things that she said, listen, I see how you pick up around the people where you need to be kind of little suit and tie. Fuck them. You need to be yourself. Like, fuck them. And she was so adamant about my timing. You know, anything and everything that I had was a slot. Boom, 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 boom. My interviews, boom, you're done. Boom, next one, boom, boom, boom. My shows, you know, when I did my first runway show, you know, she produced that with me. She did all the music, all the clothes, everything with me. She walked me down the whole thing. And it was something incredible to me. You know, I forgot us. You know, it was unbelievable. You know, so this, when I, when she said, what are you wearing from the collection for the runway show? I pulled out my suit, you know, I pulled out shoes and Nash and she's like, your dad tells me you're making some pretty radical shit for the runway show. And she's like, so what are you wearing from the runway show? I said, I'm only wearing one piece from my runway. And she's like, well, what is it? And I said, I'm going to wear black python pants. And she's like, oh, fuck yeah, rock and roll. You know, and then she's like, so what's on the top? And the shirt was just being embroidered. I said, here, come here. Let me show you what I'm doing. And she was like, oh. it was that shirt you're wearing right now. This is the, this is, that's what I've told you. This is my yes. very first runway shirt. So it's this shirt. I ended up wearing these boots with fully, you know, all inlaid marijuana leaves and metallic leathers with the cross, with the skull and, and, and they're asymmetrical. So there's nothing, there's nothing that matches the toes all match. I mean, everything is different on these things. And then my coat was a was a black single breasted pick lapel like two inch collar one button front on the on the left sleeve I did a cross in the center of it and then I did all these marijuana leaves all around it and then on the back I did the big I did a, the same kind of image but with marijuana leaves coming all over and she's like this is fucking awesome and she was like so you told she's like you parked it and i was like duh you know and i was like this is it and you know i remember my dad walking in and my dad telling kelly this is fucking a mistake he shouldn't be doing this i've been on to him this is gonna slop and she's like bullshit she's like new york needs a splash and i'll tell you that every time i show up to new york and i haven't been in 10 years and that's the honest truth i just spoke to kelly yesterday i'm not i'm not bsing you I just spoke to Kelly yesterday because I told her, Jeremy Liu, that did a lot of my denim. I said, I, I've been searching and searching. I've been in LA forcing my stuff out. I said, I want to do my hat. I just told her yesterday. She says, boom, here's the number. She's like, get on it. She's oh, like, yeah. fucking get on it. She's like, what are you doing? She's like, let me know what the hell is going on. She's like, I got your back. She's like, when you're ready, you just tell me. So she was, she was so behind it. She really, she really, you know, she was really kind of one of my rocks behind me that was like, man, don't sweat nothing. Get as wild, get as loud and as proud as you want. And it was, it was just a great experience, you know, to, to get to know her on a personal level and have that professional level of her being that mad dog. Yeah. Absolutely phenomenal. Nobody else can do like her. I mean, I'm just, that's, I've never, I have still to this day to meet somebody that can do things the way Kelly has done it the way she did it for me, the way she introduced me and put me in the forefront in New York City and opened the so many doors for me. And let me tell you, there was not a there there was never a single time where she wouldn't contact some type of press where when I'd get off the plane, 
that somebody would be there. And the first thing they always ask about is, are my, my cowboy boots? Because I always wear cowboy boots. You know, when I'm out on the field, I wear my cowboy boots. That's all I wear. They're all, all, if I hadn't made, you know, I only have, I think I only have like two pair of leddies or three pair of leddies and uh, maybe two pair or three pair of custom stallion boots. But the rest are all my own that I did with Trace Outlaw Boot Company. And they're all freaking unique. And there's some that makes, they look like I'm wearing two different pair of boots, you know, but they, 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 they go together and they got marijuana leaf all over them. And that's kind of been my kind of story. You know, the guitar that you saw, I've got a motorcycle that's got, you know, I tooled embroidery and I tooled, you know, marijuana leaves all over that, you know, so that's kind of my deal. And, you know, I'm going to be honest. So the, the leaves on my heart, and this is the first time anybody and everybody's really heard it. So these margaritas grow on the tail end of the Sierra Madre, which my mom's name is Margarita. And may she rest in peace on, on February 2nd will be her anniversary of her passing. But I drew these when I was six years old. The leaves that grow off the stem are not these leaves. If you're looking at them closed, that's my weed that's on there. And nobody knows that until you tell everybody now. But that is but closely, yeah. That's my deal. That's that's close to my heart and, and it's natural. And I wanna if I could do anything for America, which number one, I've I just hope and I and I I wish to see the manufacturing part come back immensely. I think it's it's such a perfect time. I know that we have a lot of challenges being manufacturers because of the machinery that was taken from our land here and taken overseas. So we have those challenges, but there's still we still have the technology, we still have the know-how, we have the incredible farmers here in America that can that 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 can grow with this, that can help their own land. You know, I know that that in the growth, you know, I've what I've learned you know, that I know about, like in hemp, I know that. Now, a lot of the process in growing it to use it as a textile, the waste, none of it goes to waste. Right. The stuff that is pulled off at the end tail of it can be used for feeding the animals, which is natural. You know, what do we need to consider? Yes. Are they spraying now? You know, that's one thing I don't know. And that's where you as the advocate and, and the forefront of, of this coalition that, you know, can we find growers that won't use sprays that will be harmful to us as humans when we wear it, when we turn it into a textile, number one, right? The reused recycle part of it, the waste part that we call waste, that we're going to feed to our animals that we're going to consume in time. Let's make sure we're not hurting ourselves by doing that and hurting our animals. You know, let's build this industry together. We have every capability of doing this. And there's no better time than now, especially with this craziness that happened to us in our world that kind of seems like almost a slap in the face for our communities. I'm happy to see that that individuals are, are becoming handmade out of their garages. People are, 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 are starting these little businesses from their own little piggy banks and making ends meet and doing unique things across the country. I think that's beautiful. You know, we need to just, we need to step it up when we can. If we can get in front of the right people, get the right people behind us and start and, and make these organizations really come to the forefront. I think it's very, very important. I think it's very valuable to who we are in America. You know, for me as a designer, you know, I love to use the word the Americas, you know, the, the, the artisans of the Americas, whether they're it's a sculptor, you know, a potter, a silversmith, 
saddle maker, a hat builder, a boot maker, a shirt maker, a suit, you know, a tailor. I there's no better time than right now for us to grab that bull by the horns and steer it in the direction that we need to. And, and I'm so happy that I that I met you, and I I'm hoping that this this interview really you know attracts a lot of ears and a lot of the people that we need to make this a forefront because this could be good for our communities. This could be good for America, you know? So here we go. That's where I'm at and I'm sticking to it. So I'm excited oh, that, that that I got, you know, a contact from Kelly yesterday. You know, she's still she's still so supportive and, and so humble and always takes my call and just so beautiful, you know, and I'm I'm glad that I have these contacts and I'm I'm gonna start I'm I'm gonna start using them. I hadn't been using them. I haven't touched them in a long time, but it's time. You know, I'm I've just started a, a small production of things in Southern California. I was really pushy to do things here in my back door in Nashville. It just didn't work out the way I really wanted it to and, and the way I intended it to work out. But that doesn't mean that it won't happen. You know, the opportunities are still there, the growth and the it could still happen here, but heck, if it ha- if it's going to happen elsewhere in the United States, I'm willing to go there and do whatever I can on my part to help inspire and to kind of get this flame burning in a different way. You know, not just inhaling it, but let's get it going. <laughs> also, that too. No, this has been so fun. I mean, you mentioned you're a spiritual person. I'm a spiritual person too, and. It is just, you know, your background, your history, your father's experience, everything has led you to what you were accomplishing in the early 2000s, and obviously with the team supporting you and introducing you to the world of cannabis in that way and being able to blend it with your skills and your creativity to now, you know, 2023. I mean, yeah, it's like it was, it was really cool to get to meet you in person and just that flash moment of seeing something that I recognized on something that is very tangible, right? And not traditional, being on a guitar or on a piece of clothing in a setting like Round Top and to really getting to hear your story that day and now getting to hear the expanded version. Like, I'm grateful for your time, for your passion for this. Everything you're saying, I think, you know, is 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 bringing us all to this moment. So it's like, what do we get to do from here? And so, yes, everybody listening, obviously, my network across hopefully the world, but for sure across the United States, it is. It's just having these conversations, inspiring the next generation. I know if anybody can help make an impact on this particular component of hemp's application, it's somebody like you. And you equally you know, have a voice and have a platform and have connections. And so it's really fun to get to kind of meet in the middle and have this conversation and now I'm going to tell Sage, we got to go visit you in Round Top in the next couple of weeks and can't wait to see what your next iteration of the clothing is and just know that, you know, you're a great creative person with a really genuine heart and inspiration for what is possible to think beyond just what society is telling us. You got to wear this. This is, you know, the next thing. It's like, well, let's think a little bit deeper. Let's question some of these processes and and also celebrate what we all love, which is cannabis to some extent at the end of the day. So thank you for being on the podcast and for sharing so openly. And I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you so much, Shade. It's so good talking to you and goodbye to everybody and enjoy this podcast. What a great time I had. Thank you. And come out to Round Top. If you guys are there, I'll be there tomorrow. We're opening up the dance hall and Round Top dance hall and a rockabilly baroness. So come on and see me. Bye. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? 
Be sure to visit theshadatarabi.com slash to be blunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadatarabi.com.